today of another dimension of belief that we've looked at, especially last semester, um, where we thought about belief as, as maybe how we see the world. So I started out last semester's class with this quote from G.K. Chesterton. There are some people, and I am one of them, who still think that the most practical and important thing about a person is his view of the, view, uh, his view of the universe. There are some people, and I am one of them, who still think that the most practical and important thing about a person is his view of the universe. And we um, might be tempted to think, yeah, one, one's worldview might be interesting, uh, but practical or important. Uh, and today I want to remind us, uh, as we look at atheism, about the practical and important implications of one's worldview. We know the phrase, seeing is believing. Today I want us to think about how believing, proper believing, is seeing. Um, so one of the metaphors that has been uh, with us this semester is, uh, is eyeglasses. You can look at the glasses and you can look through them. Uh, you can see if the glasses are smudged, um, if they need to be cleaned, but ultimately you want to look through those lenses. And so as we're thinking about believing is seeing, we're wanting to get this sense of what it means to put on the lenses uh, of this semester, the Apostles' Creed. What does it mean to look through the world, through the lenses of the confession, I believe and God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Uh, so to help us get there, uh, I want to suggest what it might look like to see through the lenses of atheism. Uh, and then it might help us realize, wow, there really are practical and important implications of this. It's not a matter of, uh, I kind of hold this belief in my head and you hold a different belief in your head. But when we see through those beliefs, uh, it has profound um, implications. So Alex Rosenberg, atheist philosopher at Duke University uh, gives this summary. He wrote a book, Atheist Guide to Reality. I've referenced this in here in this class before, but here is his, uh, I think his language is unsentimental um, answers to life's big questions. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? What physics says it is? So he's fond of saying the physical facts fix all the facts, which is... Um, He's getting at the idea that you take out God, you're taking out the spiritual realm, everything else, it's all can be boiled down to physics. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto. There is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul and is it immortal? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when you die? Everything pretty much goes on before, except us. I'm quoting here. <laughs> what is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? The difference between right and wrong, good and bad? Here's his answer. There is no moral difference between them. Why should I be moral? because it makes you feel better. So in his book, he argues for a nice nihilism, or nihilism, depending on how you... Uh, so he essentially says, look, there is no such thing as objective morality. There is no true right and wrong. But, you know, you kind of are happier if you try to be a nice person. We've evolved with a kind of basic ways of um, relating to one another, so it's better to go with the grain. That's why you'd be moral. Not because you really ought to, but because it just makes more sense. Is abortion euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you don't like forbidden, permissible, or sometimes obligatory? 
anything goes. His logic, I think, uh, as he argues in the book, is pretty sound overall. If there is no God, reality is limited to the natural world. And when you take away the spiritual, uh, the supernatural, uh, it limits uh, and constricts how you might answer these big questions. For the consistent, so he's saying if you're going to be a consistent atheist. He's not saying every atheist everywhere believes this, just like we can't say every Christian everywhere believes this. What we're doing as class is, if you're a Christian, this is the way you should see the world. He's saying, if you're an atheist, this is how you should see the world. So if you're not going to cheat by appealing to some mystical or spiritual realms, then what you're left with is there's no ultimate purpose, meaning, no soul, no objective morality, no free will, and no lasting personhood. There's no purpose. So let me explain these in brief. When you put on these lenses and see the world through them, then you have to ultimately believe there can't really be true purpose. Because purpose in life, purpose in the universe, requires intentionality. To have intentionality, you have to have a mind. You don't have a God or a person. There is no mind that's driving. There is no telos. There is no end goal. Accident doesn't create purpose. If we all go back to accident, we are stuck with accident. No purpose on the big scale, which means no purpose on the small scale in your individual lives. You may have the illusion of purpose because it helps survival, so we evolved a sense of purpose. So we all feel purpose, but it's an illusion. Not ultimately there. Of course, there's no soul. Uh, to have a soul, it requires some spiritual um, or supernatural or something more than what you find in the natural world. So. That sense that uh, the people we love who have passed are still with us, that's not real. And uh, when you pass, there's nothing left. There's no objective morality. Again, to have some sort of objective morality, you have to have a perfect standard of goodness or at least um, some purpose. If things are headed toward a certain end, then there are right ways to kind of get in line with that and there might be wrong ways. But when you take out purpose or a perfect standard of good, you remove ultimate right and wrong. Now, this doesn't mean that all atheists are somehow uh, going crazy. There still might be nice nihilists, as he describes it. Um, but ultimately, you can't say you ought to do this. You can only speak, ultimately, in description. This is, is the way things are, but you can't necessarily go from this is how things are to you ought to be this way. This is how we evolved. It might be a good idea to do this, but you can't say you must do this. Um, as C.S. Lewis says, we can't go from a declarative sentence, kind of a descriptive thing, to an imperative sentence. You can go from description to command. For Rosenberg, and some atheists might quibble with him, but the ones I've read um, seem to ultimately agree, uh, this seems to reduce free will. Uh, if there is no kind of mental or spiritual independence from the natural world, uh, then we are following uh, the laws of physics. We are highly complex physical beings, um, that um, think we have some control, but if you could kind of break it all down, you would see that we are just doing uh, what uh, the chemical processes in our bodies are training us to do, and we don't really have control over those, although we feel like it. Again, you can quibble with him, but uh, he makes a pretty strong case for this. There's the illusion of these things that helps aid our survival. Um, 
practical and important implications of seeing the world this way. This is not, I kind of believe this and you kind of believe that, it doesn't matter. In fact, uh, when we understand what we are confessing or what we are not confessing, it has major implications. Christians have a pretty good reason to say, yes, I believe in um, objective morality. I believe in purpose. I have a reason to believe in free will. I have a reason to believe that uh, who I am lasts beyond death, uh, and so forth. Objective morality, purpose, free will, life after death. To confess, as we do as Christians, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, opens up this realm of possibilities uh, in practical and important ways. And so if believing is seeing, uh, one of the special things I think about being Christian is the explanatory power. I think this is Alistair McGrath's language that it gives us. We really sense that we have lasting personhood. We really sense that there is true objective morality. We really sense that, um, that we have free will, um, that our lives can have meaning. And so, um, Christianity can give us a way of making sense of that. Whereas the, um, the framework of atheism uh, basically leads us to say, most of these things that we hold most dear, that makes us feel most human, are illusions. And you can kind of bite the bullet and embrace that. Um, or you might say, maybe that's a clue that there's something deficient about this worldview. Lauren? Um, I just am reminded that uh, I'm glad you pointed out there are a lot of different types of atheists mm-hmm. because I think one thing we can think of when we encounter a friend who professes to be an atheist, you can say, when they say, I don't believe in God, you can say, which God? Because then they have to give an account of what sort of God they're rejecting. And oftentimes, it's one that we reject as well. It's one that we're not professing to believe in. Yeah, that's great. So it can be a good conversation as well. Yeah, and I, I think, yeah, I guess I should repeat that again. Not all atheists would say this, but I think what Rosenberg is saying is if you start with atheism, this is kind of natural conclusion. So I walked with a student last, last year, last semester, all these kind of run together. But this is kind of where he found himself. And I was like, okay, let's look at the natural consequences of that. And I didn't think I made too much progress with him, but I kept trying to push him on ideas of morality and so forth. And then a semester or two later, he's like, hey, I want to have coffee. And I thought, oh, we're going to go around in circles and have the same kind of conversation. And he said, I've become a believer again. So he had kind of left the faith, kind of left behind a broken, distorted vision of Christianity, was presented with something of the deficiency of his atheistic framework that he had adopted, was given another way of understanding Christianity, and through some other things, kind of found himself back in the faith. Um, I think there's an apologetic purpose to understanding our lenses and understanding others' lenses as well. All right. Oh, questions? Yeah. Do you think that that story speaks to not giving up on someone when they when they are in that atheistic place? Mm-hmm. You realize that, as you said, that it could be that they're giving up an unhealthy God? Yeah, yeah. Um, I love C.S. Lewis, so I'm always going to quote him, but... He kind of says, sometimes what seems like a step away, if I'm paraphrasing, can actually be a step toward. You're giving up a broken paradigm, which can lead you back around to a... Um, and I tried to be humble with him, not push him uh, with this student. I think this was one of the times when I did something well and was 
honest about my own struggles. I, I think a Christian worldview has the best explanatory power, but there are problems with the Christian, or there are unanswerable questions in my own worldview, and I had to own those. And I just said, I think my questions are not as hard to answer as yours are. Um, so, yeah. Others? All right. On well, dualism and pantheism. Okay, so um, atheism is clearly outside the boundaries of what we profess, right? But um, now we're talking more about, when we start talking about dualism and pantheism, we're talking about something closer to what we've called heterodoxy or heresy. Um, So a couple of things, uh, these two kind of overlap in certain respects, so I'll talk about these together. Um, uh, the God of Israel is both good and great, okay? And um, we see that in Scripture. We see that in the Christian tradition all throughout. That If you can't see the board how I've done this, um, God is great, meaning God is transcendent. God is beyond us in every possible way. God is the creator who sustains all of reality. Um, when we overemphasize God's greatness, we tend towards dualism. So I'll explain what that might look like. And then God is also good, which means uh, one way we say that is the opposite of transcendent or kind of the pairing is, is, is that God is imminent, God is present, God is close to us, okay? And if we overemphasize God's closeness to us, we can tend towards something like pantheism. Okay, so uh, we do know that God, so we'll start with dualism. We know that God is transcendent, God is beyond us because we believe that God created us. Okay? That's one thing that we all hold. Uh, Revelations 4.11, Revelation 4.11 reads, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Everything that exists depends upon God for its existence. God is utterly distinct from us because of that. doesn't matter how far we go in the universe. We can't get to God. God is outside of us entirely, right? Okay, but when we start emphasizing that outsideness um, to the point of feeling that God is distant and at a remove from us, we tend to think of heaven and earth as opposed to one another. The spiritual realm and the material realm uh, cannot meet. So um, an early kind of pre-New Testament era version of this was Epicurean philosophy, The idea is that the gods are in their heaven and they're not going to get involved in human affairs, so the best thing we can do is just live the most comfortable life we can. Um, And then around the time of when the New Testament was being composed, we have uh, this famous uh, philosophical movement called Gnosticism. I've written it up here in teeny tiny orange letters. Um, Gnosticism is, you can hear there the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. Uh, so it's this, uh, it was the school of thought that said that there's this kind of special mystical saving knowledge that is a secret and it's a key to salvation. Um, Gnosticism actually began within Judaism when uh, Jews were trying to make sense of the destruction of the temple in the year 70 CE. So you could see there, there's this kind of, what do we do without the physical structure, the material uh, that used to be the point at which we would go to, to mediate our relationship with the spiritual. So without that, 
maybe we need to have this whole other paradigm. You can see how there might be, some people might see a need for that. So they come up with this idea, and it develops into this whole school of thought um, that is very much, um, it, the view of the material world is that it's either um, evil or at best unreal. Okay, it's not, it's not a real thing. That it misleads us regarding our true nature. Okay. Uh, so there are these famous early Gnostic writings called uh, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, the Gospel of Judas. And much of our New Testament is composed um, largely in response to uh, Gnostics who were claiming a kind of core gospel proclamation, this secret knowledge, this way to um, divinity or spirituality. And um, people who were following the apostolic teaching said, uh, this isn't right that the gospel message is for all. It's not this secret, esoteric, mystical knowledge. So uh, we need to preserve some sort of canon in response to that. Right? So that's kind of cool that we have our New Testament largely in response to this heresy. According to Gnosticism, um, the world was a mistake. It wasn't created by God deliberately. Rather, there was something like... Uh, you know, basically an angelic kind of being that fell, and because of this fallen uh, being's kind of misperception created the material world. And so we are trapped in this um, illusion that is our embodiment, stuck in our passions and impulses. The goal is to be liberated from it. We need this special mystical knowledge, and according to Christian Gnostics, Christ provides that. He shows us our true heavenly destination, and frees us, so it shows us how to kind of be free of our physical bodies. Okay, so you see there, there's this kind of uh, spirit separate from matter. Matter is bad, our bodies are bad. And there were divisions amongst early Christian Gnostics of whether or not that meant you could just do whatever you wanted to do, or if that meant you should discipline your body and be an ascetic. There was sort of, a, you know, there are two ways of thinking of that. Um, I think we actually see odd versions of this today sometimes, and we can talk about that if we have time during our discussion, but I want to say a little bit more about another more modern-day type of dualism, this kind of spirit versus body, or mind over matter, we might say. Um, and the one that com comes along in the 18th century is called deism, okay? And that's this kind of, that's a broad net we can cast, but it essentially means, I mean, we're all familiar with this. This is the paradigm where God is something like the great watchmaker who sets up the world and all of its rules, kind of winds it up, and then steps back to watch it all unfold, right? So uh, God is in heaven. God does not get involved in earthly affairs. God is not close to us. Um, God was involved at the beginning, may never be involved again, depending on which kind of deism you believe in. Um, and so... This the kind of still this is still a pretty common way of thinking. This is why so many people might say, I believe in God, but I don't pray. I believe in God, but I don't go to church. So we have a lot of that. Uh, a lot of our neighbors may kind of be, you know, functionally deists. Um, so the problem with dualism, the problem with this idea that God is in heaven or that the spirit and the material are utterly separate from one another is that it can't really make sense of this experience we have of wonder, um, the sense that we have uh, that the world is full of God's grandeur, that God is close to us. And all humans, in all places, in all societies, regardless of whether or not they're Christian, 
have had that sense. That's why people make art, right? That's why people write poetry. Uh, that's why they paint. They try to paint something that seems so beautiful to them that it's worth recapturing. Um, so from early on, humans have this sense that the world is full of God's grandeur, even though it's also a hard place, a painful place. So dualism can't really grapple with that. And then, um, of course, the dualist is also... Uh, it's hard to be a dualist and also be a Christian if you actually believe God is Trinitarian because um, what we have, according to the Trinitarian God's presence, is the Holy Spirit who is uh, at work among us that is groaning with the world and its pain, anticipating the renewal of all things. So um, I can stop there and invite Josh's comments on dualism and then anyone else's before we move on to pantheism. So kind of segment one was denying anything other than the kind of material world and the problems with that. One of the highlights from this might be... If with you, atheism, you mean? With atheism. Yeah. So with what Lauren's just doing, one, one angle might be to think about denying the reality of the goodness of the material world and all that matters is the spiritual or the immaterial. Um, and all, there's all kinds of problems, practical and important, to use G.K. Chesterton's word, practical and important implications that go with thinking the material world is bad. Mm. Our bodies don't matter. Uh, the environment doesn't matter. Um, and it doesn't make sense. It doesn't have the explanatory power of making sense of that sense of wonder and the goodness of embodied mm -hmm. existence. Mm -hmm. And so one of the special things uh, when you start, for me, digging into Christians working their way through this is they kept holding on to the tension. And the heterodoxies or the heresies tended to choose one side or the other, right? It just, it's easier. You don't have to work as hard. Let's take the simple solution, dualism. But what happens with a simple solution is you have a whole lot of more problems. But when you hold on to the complexity as these Christians were, were working through, what you get is this kind of beautiful both and, uh, that we are not just our bodies. We are more than that, but our bodies still matter. Uh, and, and it's just like, yes, yes, this is speaking to our heart, but we wouldn't have guessed it and yet, as we sit with the, the Christian faith, we find, yeah, this, this makes a lot of sense. And what I think is kind of cool about the creed is that you see here what's being affirmed. I believe in God, okay, there is a God. The Father, who is relational, who is good, uh, who is also almighty. That means something like transcendent, in charge, in control of all things. Creator of heaven and earth, spiritual and material, that the... The creation of the material world was not a mistake, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. Theism does not necessarily entail the idea that the material is evil no. or bad, does it? No, it does not. Yeah, deism is a much more modern. So Gnosticism is the one that I'm talking about here as, as being opposed right. to this. Deism is much more a kind of resigned to our fate, right? That, yeah, there, there was a creator, it's really, you know, it's going to emphasize that there was a creator, but the creator is not involved in our affairs. The creator isn't intimate with us. That there's just, it's, we're fine to say the creator's over there, we're over here, we're responsible for our own affairs. This is the best we can do. Would all forms of deism necessarily exclude any involvement of the transcendent in the, uh, in the earthly material thing? <coughs> It would not necessarily mean that there is no interaction with this. I'm not sure about that. I don't know enough about deism. I know that um, 
there are deists who think that Jesus Christ is something like the Son of God, right? That there is a kind of... So in that sense, there may be an allowance for the incarnation in certain forms of deism. But they're not... The, the most important piece of it is that, I would say, generally speaking, the deist is okay with saying, I believe in God, but I don't pray. Right? There's a kind of... Because prayer is sort of ineffective. Like, what do I... That's right. Like, what do I expect to happen as a result of prayer? And if you think God's going to respond to your prayer in some sense, that's not a deistic God you're praying to, right? Other comments? Yeah. I was, uh, Thomas Jefferson was kind of a famous, you know, deist. And, you know, if you look at his Bible where he went through and kind of took out everything that he found... Um, not necessarily objectionable, but just thing that he didn't find realistic kind of gives you a view of what's left um, from a deist perspective. And I do yeah. think you end up with good teaching, you know, good ideas, but anything that, you know, that doesn't relate to the natural world is kind of rejected uh, in, in that view. That's right. It's all about moral goodness and what can be kind of deduced from nature, right? Right, yeah. yeah. My other question is in terms of dualism, I often think of that also in reference to like Plato, Mm-hmm. Uh, would you speak to kind of the Greek influences about yeah. Plato and dualism? So a lot of these kind of philosophies always go back to Plato. And because, uh, according to Platonic philosophy, you have this world of ideals, um, and the material world is sort of uh, kind of weaker copies of those ideals. So there's something like an ideal tree, and all the trees here are just this kind of lesser manifestations of that, or these kind of, you can think of it as sort of um, branching out from this one ideal. But really, when we admire a tree, what we're wishing we could encounter is that ideal that exists in the spiritual realm. And so what we can hope for is being free from the material realm so that we can be into the, in the spiritual, essentially. And so uh, that's a kind of summary I could say more, but yeah. So a lot of, a lot of these early philosophies are inheriting those sort of tendencies. Yeah. Lauren, quick question. Sure. Would you say it's an untenable position to take the position that God intervenes in the world, maybe as we saw him intervening in the Old Testament period, intervenes as he so chooses in the world today, but for the most part removes himself from the day-to-day involvement of the world? Do you feel that's an untenable position to hold, it has too many holes in it to be a legitimate Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by intervenes or is involved or... Is <coughs> do you mean like miraculously or... No, I would say more just intervenes, works things to the way he wants them to work, but it, how you define miraculous, I'm not sure in that instance, but perhaps he just uses the natural world that he put in place, but he so maneuvers things. He's behind the scenes operating, uh, but he does so as he chooses, but for the most part, he is in a Well, I think, I think we can say that God is intimately involved in the world in the sense that we see in Romans <coughs> the Spirit, the Spirit being uh, present in the world, um, so there's something different happening there than 
what we might think of as God being the chess master moving the pieces on the board, right? That it's something more like um, God's agency cooperating with ours. God gave us responsibility. God is um, more, something more like an artist that is like drawing all things towards this good, good goal. It's actually, uh, come back to that question if this next bit of discussion doesn't answer it, because that kind of segues into pantheism. Uh, so, um, when we overemphasize God's closeness to us, we tend towards what, what we've said is pantheism, which is the notion basically that what? What do you think? What does that mean? What do pantheists believe? God is everything, okay? God is everything. Everything is God. The idea here is that um, if you could just see everything from the right perspective, you would see the divinity in it, including disease, including disasters, everything that we typically think of as needing to be expelled from the good creation. A pantheist says, no, you just haven't been enlightened. You haven't seen it the right way, right? Uh, the problem with pantheism, of course, is that it really has no hope in the face of evil. The world is what it is. We just have to accept it. Um, this was popular in the Greco-Roman world in the form of the philosophy called Stoicism. Uh, the modern-day expression of it in, in some Christian circles is what's called process panentheism. You add a little N in the middle there. So I've added that up here as our, among our options. Uh, the difference between pantheism and panentheism is rather than just saying everything is God, you say, uh, this is like saying everything is in God. So even the disasters and the disease and all of that, that's, that's all in God somehow. That's the God's life has taken that up. Um, the way this gets played out is that people think that the, the reality that we refer to as God and the world itself are these kind of interdependent realities that are co-evolving, okay? That's why it's called process panentheism. Um, that God and creation are interdependent realities. Uh, what's kind of nice about this is that it gets to say, the question that Jerry brought up, um, it gets to say that God is intimately involved in our affairs. God cares. God suffers with us. God is present in the concentration camp, Okay. Um, and that God is something like a good force luring the creation towards its destiny. And yet, um, God doesn't, there's no force here. So this is the problem panentheism runs into. Uh, still the same problem as pantheism, that there's no victory over evil in the end. Not really. This God can't intervene. This God cannot come in and remake the creation because God is evolving with us according to this. So it's kind of up to us along with God, right? So um, it kind of comes back to what Josh is saying about atheism in certain respects. What is our hope? Um, do we, is this the account of reality we find most convincing? Uh, I don't want to believe in something just because I hope it's true, but I also think I, I find the whole Christian account of reality the most convincing. And it sure is nice that it also includes the fact that God can intervene. That the world was created by God independently of us. God doesn't need us to be God. And God can fix things regardless of what we do, regardless of how badly we mess up. So um, I would say that um, 
I'll read this to you, and then we can, and then I'll, I would like to hear what Josh has to add and what you would say. But in the biblical vision of God, God is neither one of these things. God is not a timeless principle or a distant deity. Uh, God is relational. God is uh, both with us, intimately involved in our world, and yet utterly distinct from us. Uh, in, in the words of N.T. Wright, God, God's realm and our realm overlap. Heaven and earth overlap. He says, <clears throat> this is a quote from him, That means that Christian prayer is a different kind of thing. Different from both the prayer of the pantheist, getting in touch with the inwardness of nature, and the prayer of the deist, sending out messages across a lonely emptiness. Christian prayer is about standing at the fault line, being shaped by the Jesus who knelt in Gethsemane, groaning in travail, holding heaven and earth together, like someone trying to tie two pieces of rope with people tugging at the other ends to pull them apart. Okay, I'll stop there. Yeah, that's, uh, we see that, that same tension I was talking about earlier. My experience studying theology has been that it's so strengthened my faith. I think maybe, maybe we have this, this fear sometimes in churches that if you learn too much, it's going to be bad for you, as though we need to fear the truth. Uh, but for me, the more I learn, even some of the stuff that seems like, oh, is this really important? The more I realize, oh, man, this is so satisfying. It's so helpful. Uh, and even if you think about the tension here, you can have a God, and I'm going to be simplistic, but the deist God seems to have no relationship. He's independent from his creation, but also not really related to his creation. The pantheistic God might be in relationship with creation, but doesn't have that independence to steer creation to its ultimate good end. And so where is Christianity? It's, it's not no relation independence or dependence plus relationship. It's independence with relationship. And that is, that is profound. There's these practical and important implications. When we see the world through those lenses, we can have hope that things are going to be made right. But we can also have comfort knowing that our God is with us. Um, that is beautiful. Powerful. Uh, and I, I do think that it's worth emphasizing the way a Trinitarian account of God manages to hold us together. We have there, within the confession of the Trinity, the Father who is the, the one we're naming as being transcendent, God beyond us. Um, we have the Spirit who is within us, closer to us than we are to ourselves, right? And luring the creation towards its good end. And then we have uh, God beside us in the incarnation, right? And our brother Christ. So that's a pretty remarkable thing as far as holding all of this together in tension. Yeah. Comments? Questions? Um, so on that note, actually, I was wondering, because I've, I've noticed a lot of people get confused over the idea of the Holy Spirit being within all people, or at least all Christians, I suppose, and how that is different from something like pantheism or panentheism. You know, in some sense, is God within all people, or once again, at least all Christians, and how do we build that? Do you have a comment on that? Well, we will talk about the Spirit in more detail in a few weeks, but I think, I don't think there's a simple answer, but it does seem like there's something like degrees of presence. Uh, so you might get the essence and energies um, of God, so that in some ways God is withholding and sustaining all things, but there's a special... A degree of his presence, like you get in the temples, 
God is everywhere, but he's especially present in the temple. Um, God is everywhere, but he's especially present through his Holy Spirit. Yeah, I would just say that the distinction there is that, well, okay, so if you have a friend who's a pantheist, the Spirit might be a good place to start talking about God. That God's, uh, that Christians also affirm that God is intimately involved in the unfolding of creation and uh, the sense of God's presence within us. But then Christians also say God is more than that. That God is also the one that is sustaining creation and existence. God could wipe it out at any moment if God wanted to, right? And that also that somehow God has become flesh and walked among us, which implies a special sort of presence that the pantheist isn't looking for. The pantheist is looking for God in everything, everywhere. Whereas we're saying God takes a specific sort of form, so there are some things where you're not going to find God. There are demonic parts of creation. There are places that there's evil is actually going to be expelled, right? Yeah. So, a comment and then a question. The comment is, there was a lot of belief of all of these ideas and what I feel like was my upbringing and very conservative Christianity. And the question is, is the comment, everything happens for a reason, a form of anarchism? I heard that a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, I think we can say, it, uh, what I'm thinking is there's a big conversation to be had there. I guess my short response would, say, would be to say that's not a good way to uh, approach the world wherein we have been promised that uh, God will remake things, right? That there is actually brokenness, that everything isn't as God intended it to be. That God gave us some freedom, we messed up, we invited distorted reality, right? And so everything happens for a reason doesn't account for the fact that things aren't quite right. And so that said, um, God is in control. We are promised that God will, will set everything right, that God is going to wipe away every tear, and that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord is a way of saying God redeem, brings redemption out of all situations. So I don't like everything happens for a reason because it, it's that chessboard analogy in my mind. But is there anything you'd add yeah, to that? I, I think that in the really strictly reformed or Calvinistic view, I think that's what you come mm -hmm. away with, but I find that deeply problematic. I think it makes a lot more sense to say that God can take whatever happens and bring ultimate good out of it. Mm -hmm. And then you can look back from the perspective of eternity and see how he could. But, but if you think about God brought about this tragedy on your child because he wanted to do, test you or whatever. That's <coughs> it can provide some comfort, but it can also make God seem kind of like a monster. Yeah. Um, so it is a bigger question when we're thinking about free will and all that. But I um, I think it's too simplistic of a notion, or it just carries way too much baggage. And I think we say that rather than sitting with the pain of someone who's going through a difficult situation, you don't want to slap a bandaid on it. Don't be that sad. Cheer up. Everything happens for a reason. Instead of, this is terrible. And I can't even begin to fathom the reason that this might happen to me. And I walk with you, kind of the shoulder. Maybe one day you'll think there's a reason. Maybe you won't. I think some people just never know the reason. Maybe there's not. But they might say, in turn, God will be here. So is that not a form of theism? 
not a form of deism? Is that not a form of deism, what you just described there, that God is not this chess player that's moving all the pieces around? So my question is, is what you just described, which you might accept, is that not a form of deism? Um, I, I think of, not as I understand it, I think of deism as either being more hands-off, you start the clock, and it just unwinds on its own, or God only kind of kind of interrupts in kind of spiritual or moral, you know, ways, but not actually. Whereas this view is hanging on to the view that God can be sustaining and working alongside, but not forcing everything or everything unfolding according to a plan that he set in motion. So this is more of a relational kind of working alongside and beside rather than apart from or forcing. Is that distinction? Yeah, I understand the distinction. Okay, it, we're out of time, but Dixie, one last Well, I was just going to say, I remember being a teenager and a, a counselor at a camp shorts, but um, they, she said something to the effect of that it was redundant to pray your will be done because everything that happens is God's will. And I kind of bought into that as a kid and then when my cousin that I'm closest to lost her baby at three weeks, she said, if there is a place that God's will is not done, it is on earth. And that is what the, the Lord's Prayer is. And I think that when you figure, when the way she sat with and worked through that, she has opened herself up for redemption to be possible in that tragedy. But when you just shut it like, oh, that, then sometimes it's not redeemable. But um, working through the, I can't pray because he doesn't hear because these things have happened, but then still sitting and walking, you're, able it, it, it is able to be redeemed because mm -hmm. of the posture of yeah um, I think we have to look to Christ's prayer in Gethsemane right for those kinds of moments that he asks that the cup pass and yet your will be done um, and so there's a sense in which um, it's not wrong what we have there is an, an affirmation it's not wrong to ask that we not that we be spared pain and God's plan is unfolding mysteriously and it may include moving through these terribly painful moments with the hope of resurrection on the other side of that. All right, thanks. Thank you.